1: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today, I look at the art world from two angles, from someone in it and from someone who has observed that world from a distance. Writer Michael Schneerson's latest book, Boom, gives an exhaustive history of how today's art market came to be. Art dealer Richard Feigen spent his entire career in that market We'll start with Michael Schneerson. He grew up in New York. His first writing job was as the sports editor of the Santa Fe Reporter in New Mexico. He made $100 a week, but it led to a job at Time Magazine, then to Avenues, and finally, Vanity Fair, where he has published over 75 feature stories. Schneerson writes books too. He's collaborated with Harry Belafonte, written a portrait of Andrew Cuomo and unpacked General Motors and the electric car. For his latest book, Boom, Schneerson interviewed more than 200 art dealers. Whenever he writes a book and Boom is his seventh, he becomes lost in the world of his subject.
0: One reason that I undertook those books was to immerse myself in the different worlds. I mean, I found Albany a fascinating world and very, in its own way, sort of exotic one. How so?
1: Let's talk about that. This is the Cuomo biography.
0: You know, it's yes. It's often said that when uh, you uh, drive from New York to Albany, let's say you're a representative of some kind, uh, by the time you get halfway there, uh, you know you're you're within the this realm that is completely apart from uh, Manhattan, and you know there's a a kind of pervasive corruption in. Um, in Albany, it's so pervasive that there's everyone acknowledges it. Basically, mm-hmm. there are no there's virtually no rules or very modest ones on campaign contributions. Mm-hmm. You can give anything through. Uh, it's beyond cynicism. There, yeah, it's beyond cynicism. Uh, I found that fascinating. Uh, did I learn more about Cuomo because of it? Cuomo's a very complicated, dark guy who's sort of haunted by his father, um, Harry Belafonte. It occurs to me is someone who was always haunted by his father. Um, now, now with with Andrew Cuomo, who
1: I don't know well, I've met him many times, and of course, like anybody who participates on any level, uh, especially a level that can involve check writing, uh, uh, you you have Cuomo uh, lieutenants reaching out to you. Sure, but um, uh, he's a guy who I was always kind of. Uh, uh, fascinated somewhat by that relationship with his father because he's so much more a, a, of a retail politician than his dad you know But and, and their mother was this wonderful woman oh yes she was this dynamic and everybody, yeah, everybody loved her. her yeah, yeah adored mm-hmm. her Matilda Cuomo was always how's your mom and how's your mom's breast cancer thing you know, she, she knew that game inside and out and, and she yeah. did it sincerely she was a very warm woman and Cuomo would be standing there Cuomo Sr. and it was like he had a hair shirt on, he just couldn't mm-hmm. wait for everybody to get the hell away from him and go home.
3: And well, read that's a book. very
0: perceptive. I mean, he was seen as, written as, <clears throat> being this avuncular, warm, empathetic—you know, true Democrat. Um, in fact, he was a very tough father on on Andrew. Um, uh, you know, maybe one thing to be gleaned here is that. Um, Almost everybody's got a father problem. <laughs> well, well,
1: this dynamic between fathers and sons—what um, was Belafonte's like in terms of? Because when I met him, he was a pretty no-nonsense guy. T- tough guys beget tough sons,
0: mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, can.
1: Mm-hmm. What was what was Belafonte's relationship with his father like?
0: they, they grew up partly in Jamaica. His father was a sailor. Uh, in in some sort of uh, marine uh you know military marine situation he um when he came home he was um he was really abusive to his son i mean physical physical uh violence I remember Harry describing uh, a moment when his father uh well he had done something Harry had done something wrong and his father said we're going to take care of this. And he made Harry fill the bathtub with absolutely scalding water. And then he told him to come over to the bathtub and put his foot in. And just as he was about to put his foot in, the father sort of pushed him away. And that wasn't the only time he did something like that. At one, one time, I remember Harry saying that his father took a, a lit cigarette and put it to his leg. Um, <sighs> so that was pretty extreme. Um, and I think it made Harry uh, a very tough character, indeed. Um, very tough, but uh, at the same time, he did
1: seem tough when I met him. Yeah, he did not suffer fools when I met him. He really, really seemed like somebody who he had a chip on his shoulder.
0: Can I tell you a little story? Because it's just yeah. one of the great stories from that book. Um, uh, I hope it's okay if we venture a little bit away from Do from you art. Want to. Um, Uh, So, Harry had served in the military, in the Army, um, of course, in a black regiment outside of Chicago. If you were black, you were in a black regiment. Um, There was no integration. And uh, he came back. He didn't know what to do. So, he worked as um, a janitor uh, in Harlem. Uh, And one day, one of his... uh, uh, customers, not customers, the, the people in the building said, "Harry, could you help fix my broiler or something?" So he fixed the broiler and she said, Well, I, I want to pay you by giving you these two theater tickets. And uh, it's for free. It's something called the you know the uh, America the American Negro theater was, I think the name. So Harry had never seen a play, and he went down alone to see this play. And he was absolutely gobsmacked. It it, it involved, it was very contemporary, involved um, black soldiers coming back from the war, trying to readjust. So he goes up to the founders afterwards, the directors of this theater, says, I want to help. I want to do anything I can. And they say, really? Okay, well, if you want to move the props around, come on back. So he comes back. He starts moving the props around. And he's below that area of the the stage, you know, whatever you call it, where the orchestra's pit is or whatever, Mm -hmm. is moving things around. And this very surly guy, uh, is moving them around, too. And, and Harry finally says, you're not talking much. Is that because you were just in jail? And the guy freaks out. He says, why would you think that? Um, and Harry says, you know, just because that's sort of, I got I, I a sense when people are in jail, have been, and he says, well, I can't talk about that. Uh, and he says, well, what's your name? And he says, Sidney Poitier. And this <clears throat> is how Harry and Sidney Poitier met. And it was the beginning of their, like, 70-year friendship, which continues to this day.
1: Sure. Were there white artists, writers, thinkers that he trusted, that he thought really cared about the movement? You know...
0: Um, some that he respected. I, offhand, um, I don't have that recollection. What I have is actually the opposite sort of recollection, which is a a white guy whom he trusted explicitly because the guy was his therapist. And actually, the guy's last name was Kennedy. I've forgotten his first name. Uh-huh. It wasn't anything to do with the Kennedy family. Right. And um, uh, as it turned out, the guy was a spy for the FBI. And um, J. Edgar Hoover was using Planted him. someone. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, uh, imagine the sense of betrayal you feel, Uh, If you're Harry Belafonte and your own therapist has been reporting on you to J. Edgar Hoover, um, a a white therapist, Mm. just to clarify. So, I don't know. I I think— Just when I
1: thought my opinion of Hoover couldn't go down any lower.
0: (laughs) Um, I have to say, I think that that he came to trust me, and we had a very, very strong friendship, which continues.
1: I'm wondering, as I hop over to the world of art and (laughs) your current book, Boom!, did writing this book uh, lead you to look at art differently than you had before?
0: Yeah, I I think it did. I mean, I'm I'm quick to say on page 1 of this book that I am not an art critic uh, neither before nor after that you, never collected you know, know art. that that's no, I never collected you didn't art. You have
1: friends that were gallerists or art artists. Um,
0: I had a few. To be honest, I I first got into this story because some of the art stories uh, some of the stories I did for Vanity Fair were about contemporary art. Uh, there's so one. Friedman. Yes. <laughs> you know, the whole Nodler <laughs> Gallery, which we... I uh, know, I'm, so, I'm sorry, and Friedman. And Friedman, and Friedman yeah. which, which we have discussed. And, um, uh, you know, I found those stories fascinating. Um, that was the first thing. I also was intrigued always by Larry Gagosian, um, you know, the, the top dog of the whole contemporary art dealer world. And I'd wanted to write about him, and I would always be told, forget it. And it took me a while to realize that, of course, I would never get to write about... Gagosian, because he was a sacred cow, because Cy Newhouse, the head of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the head of the company, had was bought a lot of Nance, had it. bought a lot of art and was buying more. I mean, you know, uh, Gagosian had sat in an auction room with um, with Cy Newhouse, and they had bid a, 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 a work up to seventeen million dollars. So of course, I wasn't going to be allowed to ride by. Anyway, it was fine. Uh, time passed. I thought, you know. This subject is too big. I, I, I've been I've been thinking I'm going to write about the whole contemporary art world and how it got this way, from the late '40s until now, and it's going to involve collectors yes, Ellie, and curators yeah. and dealers and artists, and father-in-law's townhouses, right? Well, yes, all of it. But I, um, but I just was I just taken on too much. So how was I going to reduce it? Well, it finally occurred to me the answer was to winnow it down to the dealers because. You know, there's no art without artists, but there's actually no art without dealers either. Mm. And they had been kind of at the center of this story from the beginning. And they were a very interesting group of people. So that's how I got going.
1: You know, I when I've met Gagosian, you know, there's something about him that's so e- exciting and so mm-hmm. kind of... Because uh, uh, he, he has an energy to him. Like, you want to believe that there's a rakishness to him. Uh, to me, um, the, the only person that could play a uh, Gagosian in a movie about him is daddy would be john garfield there's <laughs> a there's a there's a tough tenacious quality. Him. Mean, you want to believe nice. that Gagosian began his career by like hijacking a truck. <laughs> Someone said, listen, kid, uh, a bunch of people, like he just, there's a toughness to him. Sure. There's a kind of a, there's a kind of a veneer to him. Of he, he's really kind of a tough guy. And warm.
0: You know, so many things come to mind as you as you speak, Alec. I mean, one thing is just to the point about his charm. It's fascinating. If he wants something from you, and I hear this again and again, then he's the most charming guy in the world. Um and he loves. I mean, there are these billionaires who who are his clients. You know, he's he's what they call collector centric versus artist centric. Mm -hmm. You know, he's realized a long time ago that if you can get Ron Perlman or whoever else, Steve Cohen, to be at your table and come to your parties and then buy the art, you're going to be great. They go hand in hand. Not long ago, I was in the restaurant Sette Mezzo, and I overheard this little snippet of conversation. Uh, I guess it was around the holidays, and uh, this heavyset guy, older guy, leaned toward someone at the next table and said, uh, "Going down to uh, St. Barts for for Christmas." And the and the other guy said, "Oh, you know, uh, you're gonna you're gonna see Larry. Yeah, we're gonna gonna see Larry. And 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 where are you gonna stay?" And the other guy said, "Oh, we just always stay with Larry. We stay with Larry." And what that meant was. That this guy has bought a lot of art from he's a Larry, and customer. that's why yeah. he gets invited, not prized. because of his charm, which he probably thought he had. Right. Anyway, so you know, Gagosian's charm is uh, it, it turns on and off at uh, at as as need be. Uh, he's also described as someone who can be um, very, you know, just turn a cold shoulder on you, just look right through you, um, depending on if you you know are necessary to him or not.
1: When you look at this line from Castelli, we'll, we'll say that's the line, even though there are other people that you write about as well in the ABEX world, as you mm-hmm. call it. Um, this line from Castelli on to Gagosian and these people who are making a market, these people who've convinced other yes. people. Um, would you say that that who was? Who, are they equivalent? Because if I read the book correctly, what you're saying is that that, that these men and some women, yeah. they got rich people to, to to turn this into a currency. Sure. So uh, who do you think it is? It's Castelli and who else?
0: Well, so to go back, you know, to the beginning of, of Gagosian, I find it just fascinating Um that he uh, grew up in the way he did in an Armenian community in Fresno, California. You know, his parents, I think were, they were Americans, but his grandparents uh, on both sides immigrants. Had, had, were immigrants from Russia. And, you know, this is very at odds with the uh, template, if you will, for contemporary art dealers contemporary art dealers tend to be, you know, to have started as rich fops. Their parents have art on the walls. Their parents know the dealer who will give the kid a job. I mean, this is how these things tend to come up. So when you get a guy like Kogosian, who didn't even know what art was growing up, never a piece of art on, on his apartment. And the father we talked about, the father actually was an accountant, did okay, but you know as as larry later said there was he never heard of anybody who had two cars <laughs> he, he never heard of anyone who went to the country for the weekend mm-hmm. i mean he was just amazed to hear that when he finally got into the art business and so you know to hear that and then to to get that wonderful story I mean it's just so classic you know he he gets out of USC he doesn't know what he's going to do he is actually gets a job at the William Morris mailroom the classic starting job except that he hates working for people like Mike Ovitz and he just he's either fired or he quits whatever he's out of there And then he spends a few years just working, like, for a record store, a grocery store, you know, doesn't have any ambition at all, which is quite bizarre when you think of how ambitious he really is. And then at a certain point, he gets a job that has him uh, working as a parking lot manager, okay? So he's in his parking lot, he looks down the street, and there's a guy taking framed prints out of the trunk of his car and uh, selling them, as it turns out. And Larry's kind of fascinated. And so he looks into this and he finds out where these posters are made and he gets his own posters. And, you know, it's the thing about him. He didn't didn't look at the guy selling posters and think, well, maybe I'll try to sell something else. He was very pragmatic. If the posters sold he would do posters right. and as he later said you know if the guy had been selling widgets he'd probably be right. selling widgets now if he was
1: selling fidget spinners <laughs> yeah, right. now something inane.
0: right yeah. so uh, so he starts but, did, but
1: didn't he he got a pop up store didn't he go get a store yes. in Westwood
0: yes exactly right. right he's he starts doing this on the street just like the other guy right. uh, trunk of his car And then, because he is framing these things, it occurs to him maybe he should have a little framing store. And so he does that, uh, and then he gets a little more ambitious, and he has a a little gallery. So he's framing, and he's trying to sell the work. But he realizes that he's nowhere out there. I mean, it's in Westwood, L.A. It's it's not a bad community. There's some wealthy people in the movie business, but uh, he knows he has to come to New York and try to ingratiate himself, and that leads him... To come in 1979, and to actually meet uh, Castelli, and and that's where the whole art world sort of begins turning into an art market. How does you he know, meet Castelli? One day he's in his uh, LA gallery, and uh, he's looking through a, a art magazine, and there are these very cool abstract photographs by a guy named Ralph Gibson, um, who just parenthetically I happen to know. <laughs> uh because he would do the photo shots for Avenue magazine. <laughs> so I would go to his to Ralph's studio and we would choose these really cool shots and they would go on the cover of the magazine. Uh at any rate, Ralph gets a call from uh Gagosian who says you don't know me? But I like your photos, and I'd like to have a, a show of them here in in California. And there's a pause on the line, and Raoul says, "But I'm in New York," and and Gagosian says, "Oh, I'm sorry, I got I thought you were in in L.A. Uh, and well, but how about if I take the pictures anyway?" And 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 Gibson says, "Well, if you want to fly here and introduce yourself, then you know we could talk about that." So Gagosian flies out. He um. Uh, he arrives on his own, and he meets uh, Gibson. They're both actually very handsome, charming guys. I mean, they really are charismatic.
1: Ready to take on the world. Yeah,
0: yeah. And they liked each other a lot. And so Gibson says, hey, before you go back, you got to meet my my agent, my dealer, you know, uh, Leo Castelli. And uh, as soon as Castelli and Gagosian met— it was, you know... An, a spark. A, a spark, and, 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 and you wouldn't have expected that because they're so different. He's a, a, a Italian-born uh, kid. Uh, took uh, the
1: mother's maiden name.
0: Yeah, took the mother's maiden name because he was Jewish and, mm. and the war was looming. Uh, he learns five languages. He's a very uh, debonair guy, comes to New York, eventually starts this gallery, as you said, on East 77th Street, becomes the sort of reigning king of pop art, um, and is very generous in his dealings, both with artists and with other dealers. He's actually the one who pioneers this idea of splitting uh, deals with uh, far-flung uh, dealers. Because instead of trying to make their money as much as they can in their own shops, why not share the the connections, and and then everyone will eventually do well. And so this uh, network uh, was a, a new concept and totally not what Gagosian would have done. This was very much Castelli, And, you know, Gagosian uh, was charismatic, but he was also a very uh, aggressive guy. Why he hadn't showed that before, I don't know. But now he was very aggressive. And uh, he started uh, selling paintings, much as he had the the framed posters in, in L.A. He just was sort of a guy who would uh, buttonhole you on the street and say, I, I know you're a dealer, you might be interested in this guy's work and, uh, and like people, they said
1: that, that they said that Ralph Lauren used to sell ties to people tableside Lauren would like walk up to people and show them like his collection of ties he that's was so funny him. well that's yeah.
0: that's basically I mean and, and that's the way Gagosian was regarded as a, a totally bumptious kind of uh, you know Aravis or whatever uh-huh. and uh, and there was one person who didn't agree with that take and that was Castelli would people Tell you who knew Castelli that he was really very astute about art, that he knew good
1: art, or was he the same as Gagosian? Was all about markets, and he just was the first. Well,
0: that's a good question. Um, you know, people are always talking about uh, an eye. Does this guy have an eye? Does he have a good critical eye? Can he really recognize which is the good painting and which is not the good painting? And it was, it was assumed by everybody that Leo Castelli had a great eye. But those who are real cognoscenti in this world would tell you that it was actually his wife, Ileana Sonnabend, who had the great eye. Um, but you know, uh, you talk to a really, really smart critic like Robert Storr, who was the head of the Yale Art School, and he would say it was Ileana all the way, and and uh, was just riding on on her eye. You know, well, <laughs> that's not a very good analogy, but right. was riding on Depending her judgment, on Iran, her judgment. Yeah. Robert Storr, the the great authority I've just quoted here, uh, would be just as quick to sort of disparage Gagosian as he was to uh, disparage Costelli. He would say that, no, no, Gagosian is just a retail guy. That was his, he's just a retail guy. Um, But, you know, uh, I don't think that's fair. I, I remember I said not long ago that I am not an art expert. I'm not an art critic. But I will say that every, uh, virtually every uh, artwork, every artist that Gagosian has represented that I've gone to see, I've just felt uh, excited and drawn to that art. And, and, and people who really are in this business are actually very respectful of Larry's eye. He's really got it. And you, when you walk into his gallery, it's not just the art but it's the frames. <laughs> Back to the frames. But now there, you know, it's no simple frames in in LA out of the trunk. It, it, it's beautiful frames and it's beautiful floors and it's and it's it's actually you know very attractive people to you know usher you in. I mean, it's all really done perfectly. And uh, and of course, he's also the one who had. I don't know if the eye is the right way of putting it, but the the sense, the prescience. To um, start uh, expanding, uh, not only to another gallery in New York, and there were a few who had two galleries in New York, but to um, to the rest of the world. So I don't even know what the count is, whether it's 17 galleries or, or 19. I, or, I, right, it's somewhere right, right. between 17 and 19. We'll have to see right. how it settles. But, um, you know, this was a guy who, who made his first move in that regard in about 2000 when he went to London um, and there's a cute little story. I, could, I it just takes a minute uh, because it, it it's charming. Larry had no thought of going to London. Uh, he was settled in New York, um, but he had someone who worked from a lovely woman named Molly Dent Brocklehurst. There's a name for you, and she was a, as you might expect, a very blue blood person. She was from, uh, she was English, and she worked for Larry in his New York. Um, Gallery and the the one that the flagship across from the Carlisle Hotel, and one of her artists that she handled for him was Damien Hirst, and Damien Hirst, uh, you know, we could talk for hours about Damien <laughs> Hirst, uh, but the fact is hugely successful and the kind of art that artists that that Gagosian liked best, the kind who could churn out stuff, you know, like on a production line. Mm. Um, and so Molly was very important to Gagosian because she was the go-between with Damien Hurst. And one day she said to Larry, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, I've got to leave you because my father's just died. There's a castle in the family and I have to go tend to the castle. Um, and Larry took a beat and he said, well, why don't you just open a, a, a Gagosian office in London? And then you can tend to your castle and Damien Hurst is there anyway and uh, you can sell some art. And so that's exactly what happened. that at that happened to be just the time that the uh, Russian oligarchs were starting to come over. Mm-hmm. And so there was this whole new, you know, Vein of big mm, money, right. um, and and Larry, Larry didn't know that was going to happen. It mm. just it just happened out of serendipity. There's a lot of luck involved with. There career. is a lot of luck. Yeah.
1: Now um, you touched on Mary Boone. Yes. Who I have uh, my own uh, history with. So I've, I'm told. I, I just want to ask, you know, in the way that people build these careers, because because part of that experience for me, I looked at it. It was kind of inexplicable. Mm. You know, when I when I went through what I went through, mm. which was, you know, very specifically to purchase a painting by a painter in a certain year, and let's say that year was 2010 or 2011, and I pay a five-figure sum for that painting. Yeah. And then I say, I want you to go find me this other painting that's an older painting that might be worth twice as much as that or more, and you then sell me that painting. I think you're selling me that painting, but what we find out is it's a copy you had made of that painting. Yes, yes. And yet you charge me the amount of money. this was kind of the undoing of the whole thing for her yes. was when you represent that you charge me a hundred and ninety thousand dollars when I just bought the other one from you two weeks ago for eighty five thousand dollars. why would I pay you one hundred and ninety thousand for the one when I just paid you eighty five for the one that was <laughs> fresh? you know there was a lot of things that made it difficult for her to yeah. escape um Responsibility, and 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 when she settled with me, I mean, it's, it's all on public record. She yeah. you know, she writes me a check for a million dollars yeah, yeah. to go away, and and my point is is that that we all sat there the 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 um statute of limitations had passed in terms of the criminal mm. and we get ready to do a civil trial and we're going to we're going to uh, go after a lot of emails of her and they settled the case very quickly mm. at that point because you realize she didn't wake up one day and decide to do this to me that day no we wondered whether there was some and I'm wondering for someone who had a career like hers it was so you know, important. Mm. I mean, she represented people. She must someone said to me, you know, she'll just turn around and take a basquiat out of the bin that she has and sell it to cover her her losses, you know, to her in, in this litigation. What do you think happened with someone like her? Why?
0: I well, here's what occurs to me to say. I mean, I've interviewed Mary, I interviewed her a good long time for the book, and then as the book was getting ready to be published, of course she was um uh she was sentenced and a nail for tax and, evasion nail yeah. for tax evasion, and so I went to interview her again um and that actually became an article in town and country um so I spent quite a bit of time with her um you interviewed her after the sentencing yes- right? mm-hmm. yes, yes, spent a little time in her gallery um I think she was still sort of trying to shape the narrative there and and thought I could do this and and maybe she thought Town and Country was a pretty sympathetic audience, which I suppose it's fair to say it is. Um, but I had, well, first of all, I had liked her. You know, the, the, she's she's easy to like. She uh, she's charming. She's sort of she's she's sexy. Pretty feline, yeah. Feline is a great word for it, and um, uh, and certainly in those early days, she showed uh, enormous. Uh, cleverness in how she uh, built her business. By the way, Gagosian was the one who discovered David Sally. Um, uh Mary Boone had had a chance. She'd looked at his work early on, but she'd rejected it. She wasn't bold enough in that instance to think that that would work for her. But... Gagosian went to see uh, Sally's work, and uh, and he took a chance. He had rented a loft uh, on the fifth floor overlooking 420 West Broadway, which 420 West Broadway was the the big artist cooperative, Leo Castelli, the king of the realm. And so when Gagosian rented a, a, a loft space on the fifth floor, literally looking down at the kingdom... It was kind of almost creepy, you know. It was like he was looking down to what he was going to conquer one day.
1: He was rolling in the cannons.
0: Yes, he really was. And so he had this show for for David Sally. It did very well. He sold quite a number of paintings. Mary Boone came across the street from her new little um, gallery at, at 420, And she ended up taking Sally because, you know, Gagosian at that point was just a guy from California. He didn't really know. He wasn't a dealer. He had to admit he was not yet a dealer. Um, And that's actually what drove him to be kind of a different dealer instead of uh, representing an artist's primary work. In other words, you, you, you find an artist, you discover him. He paints the painting. You take it and you sell it to a collector. That's primary that's the primary market. If the art has been sold once, then it doesn't matter how it's sold the second time. might be an auction, might be a private deal, whatever that—then it's a secondary market. So, Larry was always most interested in the secondary market because there was more money in it. Mm-hmm. It was usually a 50-50 situation. And uh, because there was just more art to buy and sell. He would, he would go to someone's house for dinner. He would see work on the walls. He would remember and that someone And you were dealing else... with people
1: very often who were businessmen.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. Meaning
1: when you're dealing with artists, they're artists. Yeah. And, when, and, when I'm taking paintings that somebody who's the owner wants to sell, really right. everybody realizes it's commerce. Right, you
0: know? and, and, and you know, uh, I mean, he did discover Basquiat very early on. It wasn't the first, but the second, I would say, in fairness to Larry. Um, and— uh, and he uh, uh, did enormously well with Basquiat. But even so, that, again, was a primary artist. Uh, the work was selling for a few thousand dollars in the early 80s, uh, whereas only a few years later, in the 80s, uh, uh, Gagosian was representing um, uh, people like Cy and, and and probably getting half of a, a $17 million sale. So uh, se- secondary work was really where the big money was. And that's where Gagosian went. I, the one other thing I would just say about Mary is that um, I think I think that what she did really shocked the whole art community, the whole art market. And I don't think that people do that sort of thing a lot. Now, having just said that, Larry Gagosian did have to give four million and change to the to the IRS for uh, sending works that had been bought to a buyer's second residence and, and state rather than the first one. You know, that sort of thing You that dealers can sometimes do. Uh. Well, I,
1: I have one last question for you. I want to say that, you know, the, the, this kid from the Upper West Side, where you grew up in the Upper mm. West Side of Manhattan, who's tooling around New Mexico with a guitar. He doesn't know what he wants to do. He's running for the Santa Fe Sports page. And then uh, you you enter a world in which a, a, you, you see a lot of things and you experience a lot of things. And one of them is love. Mm-hmm. One of them is you meet your wife, yes, in the in the in the towers of Manhattan, shall we say? Yes, I
0: think that's very. How to did say. that happen? Well, uh, my wife uh, Gayford Steinberg um, was married to uh, a very well-known uh, titan of Wall Street, Saul Steinberg. Uh, no secret there. Uh, they had a wonderful marriage for uh, for many years, but he did eventually die after a, a long lingering situation. I knew uh, Gayford through. A few different women who are sort of hostesses around town Mm -hmm. who would have me as a single guy at the table. And I remember uh, meeting her a first time um, and just being dazzled by uh, her intelligence, her beauty. And so uh, some months after Saul died, I I just thought, God, I really love talking to that woman. Let's just invite her to lunch and see what happens. And We went to lunch, and we had a great time, and we went to dinner, and one thing led to another. So that was... (laughs) We are celebrating our fifth anniversary on Saturday.
1: Michael Schneerson, his latest book is Boom. If you want to hear more about the social scene at the height of the 1980s, you can't get a better storyteller than Tina Brown, who took over Vanity Fair just in time to document that period's excesses. We were... In
2: the reagan era right we just uh ronald reagan was on a glide path to re-election i came in as a london uh, outsider who didn't know really much about america and i was just plunged into this world of reagan's america which was this kind of black tie wildly uh consumerish you know
1: bob colicello
2: bob
4: Bob Bob colicello he was on the magazine It was
2: just I mean I, I it boggles my mind when I when I read the diaries now and when I started to compile them, how much we went out.
1: For a link to my full interview with Tina Brown, text Tina to 70101.
5: Visit LiveNation.com ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Richard Feigen's New York Gallery has sold hundreds of millions of dollars of the greatest works of art from the Renaissance through Basquiat. His expertise is the Italian Baroque He was one of the most important dealers to the newly minted millionaires of 1980s New York who all bought their art and their cultural cachet from Feigen. As Sotheby's put it, quote, Richard's secret is to buy what's not in fashion and to trust his keen eye for quality, unquote. In recent years, he's been stepping back from the day-to-day leadership of the gallery, but his taste is still evident in its choices just this year before the pandemic hit. They put up an exhibit of old master and 19th century drawings. Richard Feigen's a dealer, but says he's really a collector, a passion he's had his entire life.
3: The 11-year-old Richard Feigen earned $100. and The first thing I bought was $100.
1: you bought a painting for $100? Yes. And when you told your parents you were going to take the, the, the $100 of your personal fortune, yeah. all of your personal fortune, and buy a painting with it, what did they say?
3: I don't think they much interfered. They just,
1: they just didn't. No. As long as you were happy. Yeah. As long as you left them alone didn't bother them. He's going to go buy a painting. Okay, so what? Let him go buy some paintings. And you bought what painting?
3: I bought a Flemish painting from the 16th century. In a an antique store near where I lived for a hundred dollars.
1: And what was and what was it about? Meaning, it was it really about an appreciation of art?
3: Partially, partially, it was financial.
1: At eleven, yeah, you understood the equity involved at that age. Yes, because you were surrounded by your father was successful.
3: Yeah, but he he was a lawyer. He they didn't have any art.
1: They didn't have any art. No. So how does well, what's the 2001 a space odyssey moment for you when the black monolith shows up in your bedroom and tells you you need to go out and buy art
3: I don't know I guess I I recognized the values and I felt that There was a vast difference between price and value So I decided to take advantage of that and then I ended up selling it for hundred dollars So It was not a very successful no, deal.
1: It wasn't a score. No, it wasn't a big coup for you Does this progress? Was it a one-off, or did you keep going, even when you were 11? You kept going? I kept going. When did the aesthetic enter the picture?
3: It entered it fairly early, as I got more involved, and I got to understand more. Then the aesthetic took over. In the beginning, I went to work for a company that was in my family, an insurance company on the West Coast.
1: Right, Beneficial standard? Yeah. Did you enjoy that?
3: I enjoyed the investment aspect, but the art that I wanted to chase was in New York. So I arranged to buy art for the chairman of our company, which brought me to New York frequently. And I ended up staying in New York.
1: You sold your seat on the exchange in 57. You were on the right. stock exchange. Yes,
3: yes. One of the great Wall Street figures told me that I wouldn't like it, and he was right. So that I only had that seat for about a year.
1: And you and you and you dumped your seat on the stock exchange.
3: I dumped it. <laughs> I, <laughs> you I sold b- it for I a lot bro- of money. <laughs> I broke even, even on it. It cost me fifty thousand dollars. I had about six thousand dollars of initiation fees or whatever, and I sold it for fifty-six thousand. Exactly what I paid
1: in fifty-seven to start your own art yes business, your own yes. gallery yes. But then you, but when you open up Richard Feigen, your first company. You've got to get money to go buy paint, or do people lend? Do the people do they consign the paintings? I things on
3: consignment.
1: And when did things begin to change for you? When did you start to really take off, if you will, and sell more paintings and build your business?
3: Well, when I, I got to know the collectors and the museums, I became very much involved with a number of museums, and I began to either know what they wanted or what they ought to want. And then I had to convince them of what they ought to want if they're lacking certain things. So
1: museums themselves are clients of yours.
3: Oh yes, a lot of museums.
1: Right. Was there a sale or a transaction that you facilitated back then that really began to make your reputation? Was there one you recall where you thought that was a big turning point for my company?
3: Um, I don't think there was a single right. instance. Right. But but I've dealt with most of the major museums in the world. I mean the Metropolitan. National Gallery, the Louvre, and so on. And I would spend time, look at their collection, decide they need such and such a painting, and then if I had it, I would offer it to them. Hopefully they would agree with me.
1: Someone that you were an early proponent of was Bacon, who I am a great admirer of. So I'm assuming you knew him. You must have known him
3: correctly. I never met Bacon. You never did. I had the first Bacon show, I think, in America but I didn't deal with him directly you didn't I just bought up his work around because uh, I admired it
1: right.
3: he originally said he was going to come to my opening and I thought that was great and then I later got a call that he wanted me to fix him up with some young boys <laughs> and I said I'm, th- I'm out of my water here I'm not up to this I, okay. I couldn't handle it so I dissuaded him from coming
1: your one chance to meet Bacon.
3: I suppose I could have met him.
1: Otherwise. Had you been willing to pimp for Bacon, you might have had a nice uh, friendship.
3: Yeah, I might have.
1: <laughs> well, you might have had a hell of a <laughs> friendship. Ended up in jail or something. Well, who knows? Who knows? Yeah,
3: but when I, I can't remember the exact timing, but I bought my Francis Bacon show, the whole show of fourteen paintings, cost me an average of probably six, seven hundred dollars a painting. And I sold them for 1,000, 1,200 paintings that are individually worth now. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah.
1: How would you describe the art market today to, compared to when you first arrived here and moved here in the 60s? And...
3: Oh, I think the, the art market is much, much larger now, much more international. Right. And um, the focus has changed a lot. Right now, the old master market is largely dead, unless you have something extraordinary that nobody's ever seen before. There's a very small market for old masters, largely contemporary. And that's where all the focus and the spotlight has been on the contemporary. So I may see permanent value in things and end up buying it when there isn't that much of a market for it.
1: I think when you see someone or you read about them in the paper... And they say that this guy bought this painting, uh, uh, this uh, Picasso or whatever, some you know huge name in the in that world, and they paid five hundred million dollars for the painting. They paid you know, the highest amount ever paid. Do those people always assume that the day will come that they'll sell that painting for more than five hundred million dollars, or do they ever sit there and say, "I don't care about that. I just want that painting because I love that painting." It's always about, or is it always about? equity and markets and resale eventually?
3: I think it depends a lot on the individual, you know. Um, I think if they're spending that kind of money, usually they have to be assured that the intrinsic value is there and will be You're going to get it back, there. yeah. Some people don't much care. For some people, that $500 million may not be that much.
1: The, the documentary that you were in, The Art of the Steel, I want to get to something about that in a moment. But another documentary I saw, they showed Koons standing in a laboratory-like setting with a bunch of his uh, uh, disciples, and they're all applying paint to these canvases and under his direction— and they're asking him, basically, is it a Coons if your hand never touches the brush? And he was unrepentant. He said, oh, no, I'm everything. He said, what they're doing is completely at my direction. And, and there was a bunch of them working simultaneously. He's going from canvas to canvas to...
3: Well, he has a, he has a sort of a factory,
1: I right. think, downtown. Now, what do you think about that?
3: I think a lot of these values are confections. And I think that Jeff Koons is a very sophisticated and clever guy and a substantial buyer of old master pictures, which I understand a lot of them are on loan to the Metropolitan Museum.
1: Things he bought, Koons.
3: Things he bought. And he's very sophisticated. I do not believe he's an artist of of any consequence. You don't? No. A lot of people would... Differ from different with me on that. Right. I don't think so.
1: You have never transacted a coons. You never bought or sold. Never,
3: I've never bought or sold a coons.
1: No, because you didn't want to.
3: No, I I I don't get involved in things where I have doubts about the intrinsic value there. Ever? No, really not. And I don't consider Jeff Coons an artist of
1: consequence. Do you think there's a market for a place? Uh, a gallery to open in which you have uh, you know the the curators of the gallery let's say are people with some experience, and on the walls they hang art of people that are undiscovered that they really really believe it and all the art is for arguments sake you know under twenty five thousand dollars it's it's not super expensive it's not no six figure purchases there, maybe even under 10,000. Do you think there's a market for that? Do you think people want to come in and they want to look at art? Or do most people who have money to buy art, they're big game hunters. They want famous big pieces and feathers in their cap and so forth.
3: I think there's very little now that remains undiscovered. The market has expanded and there's so many people in it. Uh, and you can't predict which things are going to be successful or not. Um, I remember years ago, I was in Japan with a very dear friend of mine, Jim Rosenquist, who just died last year. And um, we were in this gallery, and in walks the artist Kusama. Her work at that time was... Very inexpensive. Since then, they've gotten expensive, and uh, you couldn't have predicted that. For me, it's relatively easy to tell which things have permanent importance. That doesn't mean that they're ever going to be picked up by the market. they yeah, collectible. Expensive. Yeah. There are things today that I'm, I'm just flabbergasted at the prices they bring, because I don't regard them as being intrinsically very significant. Whereas five years ago, they cost very little now their, pr- their prices are enormous it doesn't happen very often, and you can't tell what which things are going to have that kind of appreciation
1: the The documentary that you were in art of the steel oh yeah, uh, uh, one of my favorite documentaries about the acquisition of the Barnes collection yeah. folded into the uh, uh the Philadelphia museum and all the Sturm and Drang about that. And there you are at an exhibit, I think it's either Christie's or Sotheby's, and you say some art, my favorite quote, some art is attractive and not very significant, significant and not very attractive. And then you point to a painting and say, now this picture, this painting, is neither significant nor attractive, but it'll sell for $30 million (laughs) or some obscene amount of money.
3: Yeah, I got a lot of flack out of that. Did you really? Yeah. No, and the Barnes is a very good example because the Barnes Foundation, I was very much opposed... To moving it, right, and um, they wanted it downtown for tourist reasons. I always maintained that it was it was fine where it was, mm-hmm. and if they wanted to make it accessible to the general public, they could have run shuttle buses back and forth. It was only a about a fifteen minute trip. Sure. I visited it down in Philadelphia. They tried to re they tried to recreate. The hanging the moves, of the paintings yeah. and so on. I think that was absurd. Um, I think it's been successful. I assume there are crowds of people that come and see it. Mm-hmm. But I still think it could have been handled where in, their, in their other building where they were, which was an admirable building. I don't think they had to move it.
1: Is there, is there a—if you go to one city— and you're going to go and see the art in that city, you're going to pick one, which one would you pick?
3: I would probably pick London.
1: You would. Why?
3: Because the National Gallery has a great collection. The Tate Gallery has always been very active. Uh, it's a it's a real... And the new British artists are continue to be very important. They were... When I was involved with giving exhibitions, I focused on the new generation of British artists. It's no longer a new generation. They're now older, much revered group of artists. But they've had a very significant um, role in what's going on today. So I think that Tate is important. The National Gallery in London is important,
1: and so on. Now, in your own home, is art something that certain pieces survive and they stay there forever? Are pieces that you have on a wall and they're never going to leave that wall and they live there forever? Pieces you love? Or does the art in your home change over time?
3: No, the stuff in my home generally is stuff that I own personally and is pretty stable. It stays there.
1: Right. Stuff you love.
3: Oh, I have... uh... A pretty large group of very early Italian pictures from the, from the 14th and 15th centuries, which is a, is a period that interests me a lot. Why? First of all, I like it aesthetically, and secondly, it's important in terms of the evolution of art history. Some of the things in that period, interest me intellectually. So I have a large group of those things. Mm -hmm. Every now and then I give something to the Yale Art Gallery. Mm -hmm.
1: But so you have, beyond your home and in your gallery, do you have in storage tons and tons of pieces that you own?
3: Not tons and tons of things. But some? Some things I have, but I don't keep it in storage. It, It usually is on my wall in my home, if it's personal.
1: Or in a gallery.
3: Or in my gallery. And I don't generally change that around that much. There's not that much that interests me enough to buy it. I don't have that big a diverse inventory.
1: Richard Feigen. Last year, Feigen sold some of those personal treasures to fund his retirement. This is Alec Baldwin... And you're listening to Here's the Thing.